Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Women-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Rashmi Kudesia about her extensive work with PCOS. And for our listeners who are new to the show, you can get a PDF of our show notes or be notified of upcoming guests so that you can submit your questions by becoming a patron of the Women-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH or you can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. So hi, Rashmi. We would like to start out by giving our listeners a little background about who we are speaking with. So if you could talk about yourself, including your background, your education and training and your current work. That sounds great. Thank you guys so much for having me, first of all. So I guess a little bit about myself. I'm originally a Midwesterner. I was born in Chicago, grew up in Michigan, and then I moved around a lot for school. So uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Brown, um, was a bachelor's in science, and then I went to Duke for medical school. And then I spent the next decade or so in New York City uh, training. So I did my residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Cornell, and then my fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Albert Einstein up in the Bronx. During those years, I also did a master's in clinical research. And so I think we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I think that background is really just helpful in thinking through the things we do and don't know um, from a scientific perspective, especially when it comes to PCOS. After finishing my training, I was on the faculty at Mount Sinai School of Medicine for almost three years and continued to do some research and teaching uh, along with my clinical practice there. And then I moved down to Houston, which is where I am now. So I practice at CCRM Fertility Houston. I'm the director of patient education and the site director for our Sugarland office down here here. And I'm on the faculty at Houston Methodist Hospital. So right now, my primary focus is in taking care of individuals and couples that are looking to preserve fertility, manage PCOS, get pregnant, and you know, do a lot of community outreach and education as well. So just doing a few things, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> dabble here, dabble there. Yeah. <laughs> so the other question we always like to ask our guests is what informs your perspective or your practice? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? Yeah, I think it's always interesting. I love hearing, you know, how people find their way into their career. And for me, it was kind of a a bit of a random route. So I knew I wanted to go into medicine. But during my college years, I actually took an embryology course where we talked a lot about how science interacts with society and sort of the understanding that, you know, when we do research in the lab, or we create some new development or technology, there is inevitably some sort of impact. And what I realized in thinking about IVF or in vitro fertilization, and just reproductive technology in general, is that there is this huge impact on women, right? So if something like IVF exists, what does that mean for us? Does that mean there's now this added option? So more women can have families, which is amazing. But by the same token, is there also a lot of pressure now to do all of the things, right? So, you know, even if it's a huge financial, emotional, physical burden, so what does that mean for women? And so I started thinking a lot about reproductive medicine and sort of the feminist angle on that. And interestingly to me at the time, the feminist literature uh, was really down on reproductive technology. It, 
felt coercive. It felt like the literature really suggested that perhaps it was a paternalistic way of forcing women to be mothers. And so kind of just thinking about all of these questions of how reproductive medicine interacts with society and and the different ways to think about it, I just found it really fascinating. And so I started to think that that's kind of what I wanted to do with my career. And when I got into the clinical practice of it, I realized a couple more things, which is that one, it's just an incredibly personal journey, right? So whether you have children or not, what you're dealing with, with your reproductive health, it ends up being this really incredibly emotional and personal journey. And it's really a privilege to be able to be part of that. And then on top of that, even though it you know, we all manage some form of sexuality, contraception, pregnancy, fertility, something, one of those things, at least as women over the course of our lives. And yet it's so difficult to find good information on it. And so I think that's the piece that really became, has become the most important to me, which is that, you know, all women starting from really pubertal age deserve to have high quality factual information. And we just don't live in a society or a country where that's always a given. And so whether it's because of our education or our healthcare system, there are lot of limitations. And so I think that's what really informs my current practice is what are the ways with each individual patient I meet, but then also, you know, in the community that we can spread factual information and help people feel informed about about their body and about their choices. Girl, you just said all the things. <laughs> yeah. That is all the things. Yeah, this is us. <laughs> I mean, it's. I'm glad that finally people are kind of paying attention to this. I feel like it's really amazing. There have been a lot of great health advocates in the past couple of years, I think, that are speaking up. And, you know, social media actually, I think, has become useful in that regard for people to be able to share their journey. So it's heartening to me to see that happen. Can I just ask you more details about your current position? I, I can't remember exactly what you called it, the director of patient education. education. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about how you ended up in that role or what that role entails? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of informal, but basically what it is, is that I've always been really passionate about trying to bring information out into the community. And so, you know, I'd like to look at community partnerships and say, okay, well, can we set up a session that maybe is targeted to this specific demographic? Because sometimes I find that women may be more interested in hearing information in a setting that feels very comfortable to them. So for example, I've done, you know, a lot of outreach in the lesbian and transgender communities for lesbian or transgender women or trans men that are looking to freeze eggs. And so, you know, a lot of those places particularly are very sensitive to where it's just easier to be able to ask those questions if they know it's a safe space. Similarly, last year, we hosted a women of color and fertility event because it was very clear to me that the data is very clear that women of color experience fertility at the same, if not higher rates, but there's just much less access to fertility care. And so same concept. The idea was, okay, if we are specific and sort of calling out, this is something we want to talk about, and it's going to be a safe space to address any sort of biases or anything that comes up in the healthcare system, we can do that here. And so to me, that's what that is. And then I also try to do education on my social media, share relevant articles, and just kind of try to break things down in ways that are digestible to women across whatever health literacy or whatever background they're from, whatever age they are. And so that's kind of how I I view that position. Where do you host these events at? Are they in your clinic space or do you do them out in public? 
It's a mix. So we've had some in our office space. So for PCOS, actually, we've done outreach events during PCOS Awareness Month in September, that one we held in our office. But then some of them we will go out and do in the community. So it it just depends on what the specific event is. Cool. Yeah. And now I'm recalling, I think because it took us so long from the screener call that we had with you to actually sitting down and recording. But now I'm recalling one of the other reasons besides PCOS that we wanted to have you on was just because you're a physician who's really doing a lot of outreach, particularly on social media, which is how we connected. So I like to kind of get your sense of how that sort of started for you, why you went to social media and how that's going. So I think the rise of social media and medicine is its just a really, honestly, a new thing. Over the past couple of years, I feel like it's really grown exponentially. And I felt very fortunate that it was something that basically since I finished my training, I was starting to realize that many women are turning to social media and community groups and forums to get information rather than coming to a nurse or doctor. And sometimes that's because maybe they don't have somebody they trust, or maybe they think it's a silly question. But even on Facebook, I'm kind of a lurker in some of the PCOS patient groups. And you know, it makes me sad when I see somebody post a question like, I've had PCOS for a while, I've really been struggling with my diet and or my weight management, and I don't have anybody to talk to about this. What do you guys do? And then it's really great that there are all these women to answer these questions. But then by the same token, you know, 50 different people will just randomly say anecdotally what worked for them. And I just, aside from the emotional support, I don't know how helpful that is because everybody is different. And so I just think that there's better ways to support people. And so the more I started seeing that people are out there trying to connect and sometimes feel more comfortable asking something to a community of random strangers than to their doctor, I thought to myself, well, this is a place that I need to be also. And then it was one of those things I really wanted to do. And then when I was fortunate to have a little bit of time off in between my two jobs when I relocated to Texas. And so during that time, I was like, all right, I'm going to use these weeks to try to create this presence and kind of jumpstart that. And so it's kind of just something I'm trying to do as well. And it's been great because there's kind of this group or community of physicians on social media that has really been growing. And so it's nice because I've actually reconnected with a lot of my colleagues that way too. And we can sort of feed off of the information that we're sharing. And it's just been really nice to see. And I think in general, the reception has been pretty positive. Do you have any advice for other providers who are wanting to do something similar to just get started? You know, it's trial and error, like most things, you have to kind of find your voice. And I think that at first, it's not always obvious what that voice is going to be, or it feels a little funny. I follow a lot of people in healthcare and a lot of women. And so I'm sort of used to talking in a voice that feels authentic to how women speak to each other. But there could be other people in my life that read that and let they feel like, oh, that's so cheesy. You know, why are you saying it like that? And so it took me a while to kind of figure out what I felt comfortable with. And I always tell for physicians too, or anybody in healthcare, I think there is a limit on what people feel comfortable sharing about their personal life or pictures and whatnot. And so as a fertility specialist, you know, I'm very cognizant of not wanting to share a lot of things like baby pictures or things that are really geared towards that. I don't want to be triggering people with stuff like that. So it just depends on what your specialty is and what your personality is. But I think the best thing is to find people that seem to be successful, that seem like a good role model. And again, I found it to be such a supportive community that if you're sort of tagging people in your posts and trying to engage with them, I think in general, people are pretty responsive and want to help lift up one another. Uh, I haven't found it to be a competitive environment on social media. Awesome. 
Yes. Thank you. Sorry to sidetrack you there. No, it's interesting. And there's so much growth right now in that area. So, I mean, I I wouldn't say I'm the the biggest player, but I'm learning and it's really, it's been fun. Well, we will definitely make sure that we get your social media handles or if anything, maybe at the end of the show, if you want to just say what they are, that way people can follow you and and find you easier. And we'll make sure that we put it on our stuff too, because I think that a lot of people will probably want to, you'll probably get some new listeners (laughs) (laughs) following this podcast. So I I definitely am like, oh, I should probably get on Instagram so I could see what you're putting in. (laughs) Stephanie manages the Instagram. I'm like 100 years old and still don't have it. So, you know, things I should probably (laughs) She's a millennial that's not a millennial. Yeah, I feel you. So it's okay. It's all good. I'm learning. I'm learning. (laughs) But anyways, all right. So yes, we did a little tangential, but that was all really good information. And so like you said, today we're going to discuss PCOS. So let's jump right in. And our first question is, PCOS is definitely getting more and more attention. And we were just wondering if you could give just a brief overview of what PCOS is for our listeners. Right. Sure thing. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, which is not the greatest name for what this really is. And I'll sort of get back to why that is. But I'm glad that it's finally getting more attention because it's pretty much the most common reproductive hormonal issue of reproductive age women. And so it affects 10 to 15% of women, depending on what criteria you use, which is incredibly common, more common than many of the things that we know more about. So truly, you know, there are different diagnostic criteria, but most of us now use what's called the Rotterdam criteria. And that came out of a conference in the early 2000s. And basically to meet that criteria, you have to have at least two out of three things. So the first thing is that the cycle, the menstrual cycle is either not coming on its own at all or is irregular. So it falls out of the typical every 21 to 35 day period length that we talk about as being the normal menstrual cycle. And so that's the first criteria is having absent or irregular cycles. The second criteria is kind of how the ovaries look on ultrasound. So this is where the name's a bit of a misnomer. Oftentimes people think that you have to have a cyst on the ovary or something like that to qualify. And actually it doesn't have anything to do with having cysts. What it is, is that as women were born with a certain number of eggs and each of them is growing inside of a little fluid filled sac that we call a follicle. And so when we do an ultrasound on a woman that has PCOS, what we tend to see is more follicles than maybe the average woman her age that did not have PCOS. And so there are certain cutoffs for the follicle number or just the size of the ovary. And so those are really the things we're looking for on ultrasound and and having a ovarian cyst or not is is not part of the diagnostic criteria. The third piece is either symptoms or blood work that would indicate a higher than average level of what we often think of as the male hormones like testosterone, but we all have them. And so some of the ways that that can show up for women is feeling like they have severe issues with acne or extra facial or body hair, or maybe that hair grows in place that women don't always get hair, like chin, sideburns between the breasts, things like that. And sometimes can actually even show up in kind of like a male pattern baldness situation in a hair loss situation, which is really distressing to women. So basically out of those three things, the irregular cycles, the ultrasound appearance, and the what we call hyperandrogenism or high androgen levels, you have to have at least two out of three to meet that criteria. So that's kind of what it is in terms of making the diagnosis, but it can show up in a lot of different ways. And we don't really know, and we'll certainly talk more about that, but we also don't know exactly what causes it. So I think that's part of the confusion is that there is just still a lot we don't understand. So because of that, so like you said, PCOS can sometimes be difficult to diagnose. Can you talk a little bit about some common complaints that you've heard from women with PCOS related to other providers when they were seeking out 
their diagnosis or the treatment for PCOS? Yeah, so part of it is that sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to diagnose in adolescence. So a very common story that I see all the time is somebody that maybe is coming to see me now to build their family and maybe their mid to late 20s or early 30s or whatever the case may be. And their story will often be, oh yeah, you know, I got my period when I was whatever, 13 or 14. And it was irregular and then it stayed irregular and then maybe they had some very big bleed or maybe it was just frustrating to have these irregular cycles. And they went to see a gynecologist or their family doctor or whatever and then they were just put on birth control. They said, oh, your cycle is irregular. Here's some birth control. That'll fix it and move along. And then it comes to find out now, fast forward 10 years or 15 years or whatever, they want to start a family and they come off of birth control and lo and behold, their periods are still irregular. And now maybe at whatever age when they were ready to start their family, they're in this place where they're trying to figure out why are my cycles irregular? Do I have this PCOS thing? And what does that even mean? And so to me, that's a huge disservice because many times my guess is that these providers or physicians suspected at least that this might be going on. And adolescent diagnosis is a little bit tricky. I typically say that I don't often give an adolescent a firm diagnosis, but I will often see somebody and sort of say, you know, look, this is what it seems like you're at risk for. And so we're going to talk about how we might firm up this diagnosis when you get a little bit older. But typically, once we get to two years after menarche, so two years after the first period, usually if the cycles are still irregular, there's a very high likelihood they will continue to be irregular. And so this kind of whole idea like, oh, teenagers just have irregular cycles is not exactly accurate. That is not uncommon for maybe the first year or so after the first period, but they really are meant to become regular after that. So I think to me, a lot of it is just that people get slapped on birth control without an explanation of what's going on. And then the worst case is people who have other explanations for why they have irregular cycles, or they just randomly had an ovarian cyst, and they were told, oh, you probably have PCOS and and really don't have any of the other risk factors or the other parts of the criteria. And then probably the last piece that I think is confusing is that, and we'll definitely talk about this, is that polycystic ovary syndrome confers this increased risk of metabolic disease for women that have it. So what that means is many women will struggle with gaining weight, particularly in the abdominal area, and being at risk for things like diabetes and heart disease, but not every woman gets those symptoms. And so for some women that are not really having weight issues or metabolic issues, it's sort of this entity that we call quote-unquote lean PCOS. I have some patients that are really, really skinny and don't really present in the typical way. And so they Google it and then they feel like this isn't me. This doesn't seem like my story. And so I think that is is another area where people feel confused about whether that diagnosis is really accurate or not. So you'd mentioned birth control and then how it complicates PCOS and PCOS diagnosing. Are there other ways that birth control can interact with PCOS or like does it delay or make things worse or better or Is there more to that birth control PCOS piece? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is. And I I think, you know, just as we've been talking about with the other trends, thinking about the potential downsides of birth control is another thing that people are are talking about now in ways that I think never came up before. And to be clear, I'm a huge proponent of birth control. I think it's one of the most important scientific discoveries of the last century. And I think it's absolutely phenomenal that women have the ability to control our our cycle that way. To me, the downsides of birth control are are a few, and, and most of them are mitigated by the right counseling, which is sort of what I was getting at with my prior point is that if somebody comes in with a concern, my cycle is irregular, my period is painful, my period bleeding is too heavy, and the appropriate workup is not done or the diagnosis is not explained, and the woman is just told, it's okay, we're going to fix this by 
taking birth control and then that's it. That's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a situation without really explaining or identifying what's really going on. And that doesn't do the woman really much service because most of us are going to go from doctor to doctor as we move around in life. And if somebody suspected that you have something, like you have PCOS or you have some other gynecologic condition, but they don't tell you, you're kind of underinformed about what's going on with your own body. And so that's a problem. So I think that the whole concept of let's just put birth control, put you on birth control and slap this Band-Aid on it is the wrong approach. And I see that a lot. So to me, that's the biggest issue. The other downside, though, is that when you're on birth control, it is artificially controlling your cycle. So that's the plus, which means you can control when you're bleeding, it will decrease your pain and the amount of bleeding. So it is a treatment for that, but you can't track your own cycle. So for people that maybe want to know what changes are going on in their cycle, or they want to know, am I ovulating or releasing an egg on my own? That's not something you can tell when you're on birth control. And it's really disheartening to me when I see somebody come in and they say, oh yeah, my period's been super regular when I'm on birth control, so I know that I'm ovulating. I and mean, that's absolutely the opposite of what's going on. And so I think there's nothing wrong with that, but it has to align with your goal. And then the other piece is that some people don't feel great on birth control. And that's just the honest reality. So for some people that have a lot of symptoms, we have to think hard about other alternative ways to manage everything. And, and there are a lot of other approaches. So whether I have patients that are thrilled to be on birth control or really, really feel horrible on it and want to do the other stuff, that's all totally fine with me. But I think the decision has to be made in a very informed way where you know why you're on it. You understand that you can't really track your cycle while you're on it. And that if you are thinking about wanting to understand your fertility or get pregnant, then obviously you're going to have to watch yourself for a while off of it to see what's going on and what your cycle is going to be like. My practice, I've sort of seen the end results and some of these issues that you're talking about where in one case, uh, providers told a woman that she's had PCOS based on like she had some assist once. And then when you go back through records, you can't find any rationale for that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I feel some of those women will think that they can't get pregnant and then they do um, maybe when they didn't want to. And then the opposite where some women... Yeah, like you said, they go on birth control right away. Nobody's really ever explained this to them. And then they come in because they're having trouble getting pregnant. And maybe they would have done things differently if they knew this was going to be an issue. Maybe they would have saved money. Maybe they would have gotten things started a little sooner, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But I think we just have to think about the opportunity cost over the long term of maybe it makes their life easier right then, but it might not later. So I think those are really good points. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's actually one study on this topic that shows that teenagers diagnosed with PCOS have higher levels of fertility stress, not because they're trying to get pregnant right now, but because they've gotten this diagnosis and they don't really understand it. And they're worried about whether they're going to get be able to get pregnant in the future. And the reality is that the vast majority of women that have PCOS can get pregnant and not necessarily with super aggressive treatments with less aggressive, less expensive options, if especially if they don't wait too long to start their family. And so it's kind of a travesty that these girls are carrying this stress with them for decades sometimes without understanding the reality and getting access to fertility counseling. In fact, I saw a patient recently who was in her mid-30s who came to see me for management of, of PCOS outside of the fertility piece. And she just happened to mention, or I think I happened to bring up whether she had thought about having a family. And she sort of offhandedly mentioned that, well, you know, I know I wouldn't be able to get pregnant because of my PCOS. And I said, what? Who told you that? And somebody had told her that when she was a teenager and she was in her mid-30s. So she had carried that for 20 years and had been in relationships where she told her male partner that she wouldn't be able to have children. 
this is so depressing to me. I mean, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, we have to start all over again with this whole topic. And so that shouldn't happen to anybody. So I think, like I said, birth control is great for managing symptoms if you feel well on it and you can combine it with a healthy lifestyle and with the understanding. But you're right that if people kind of know, look, this is what your pathway is going to be. This is what you would do when you're ready come back to see me. This is what we will, how we'll start. Then people can make a plan, like you said. And I just think as women, there's always these things that are kind of turning in the back of our mind. And if you just knew ahead of time what to expect, then you don't have that anxiety to the same degree anyways, that you're just kind of walking around with. So I think you've hit on this already. And so I'm kind of pretty sure I know the answer, but where along in women's life are you finding then that most PCOS diagnoses are made or discovered? I think it's a mix. I think that some women get the diagnosis when they are a teenager and it may or may not be explained well to them, but I think many women do get it then when their cycles persist in being irregular. And then the other common time is when they're trying to start their family and you know maybe they come off of birth control or they finally come in for care because their cycle is persistently irregular and then they get the diagnosis there. So that is another thing that amazes me is how many women I'll diagnose for the first time in their mid-30s after this has been going on for a long time, but that's not uncommon by any means. I don't know if it's worth asking. It's just a very brief, not very detailed breakdown of kind of some other treatments for PCOS besides birth control, just to kind of give our listeners a little background. Yeah, sure. So when I think about PCOS treatment, this is kind of how I approach it. So there is a validated instrument that we call the PCOS quality of life instrument. And I don't always, I don't typically administer that to my patients, but that kind of informs how I think about it. So in that questionnaire, there's basically five areas that we think about that can be potentially problematic and bothersome to women that have PCOS. So one is the irregular cycles. Two is issues with facial and body hair, which we call, you know, from the medical terminology is called hirsutism. So that's the second thing. The third is weight management. The fourth is mood. So there are higher rates of anxiety and depression among women that have PCOS. And then the fifth is fertility or infertility. And so when I'm doing a consult for specifically somebody that's trying to come in to get pregnant, obviously we're focusing on that part, but then oftentimes we really do have to talk about the weight and being healthy during pregnancy and all of that stuff as well. But when I'm seeing somebody that is coming in just for PCOS, not actively trying to get pregnant, then we try to sort out out of all five of those areas, which ones are the ones that are troublesome at that time. And so the management plan really has to take that into account because it's not going to be the same for everybody. Obviously, if one person's having very severe hair issues and the other person is having very severe anxiety issues, the treatment is totally different. So that's the first piece is sort of saying, okay, look, first of all, we have to understand that all of these things have a common denominator, which is where they're coming from. And I think for a lot of women, particularly on the mood piece, I feel like that's very liberating to understand that this isn't just them, you know, their mental health is so stigmatized in this country. And so to realize that it's not that it's ever anybody's fault, but that there is also a link to all of these other things they're experiencing, I think oftentimes feels something that's useful to know. And so it just it really depends. So first of all, first and foremost, is making sure that the general health is being taken care of that the weight is moving in the right direction or is where we want it to be that you're not developing something that we call insulin resistance, which is basically something where the body becomes less and less able to deal with the sugar that we get in our the course of our everyday diet. And so first thing is, is like I said, just doing all of the appropriate blood tests to make sure and evaluation to make sure that the baseline health 
is where it should be. And then talking about how we can do better. So diet primarily is the first treatment. And for many women, they are sensitive to certain things in diet. So certainly carbohydrates are, are the big baddie in, in PCOS and not just the obvious things like desserts, but a white bread, white flour, obviously sodas and juices. So sometimes it's like I have to revamp somebody's diet entirely. So that's always the first thing. And then we know we talk about exercise. We talk about is there a role for supplements or acupuncture? We talk about whether we need to have even a more multidisciplinary team and have therapists on board or a support group if there's a lot of mood issues going on. We talk about other treatments for hair growth. So it really depends on which pieces of all of those five things are most at play and what's most bothersome at that time. And then certainly, you know, I, I think I wouldn't want to leave out the fact that if somebody's cycle is irregular and they're not on any form of hormonal contraception, they're not pregnant or breastfeeding, they should be having some sort of period or bleeding every three months or so to prevent potential for those uh, cells lining the inside of the uterus to become precancerous and cancerous. So we talk about ways to protect their uterus as well. So again, it's very individualized dependent on what that person is going through, but it's kind of a mix and, and match of all of these things. It's just that changing your lifestyle is the most important piece, but it's also the hardest piece. And so all of us struggle with being consistent on that. And so luckily there are more and more people writing about it. And so there are a lot of good resources I point people to, but that's kind of the most important thing I could ever tell anybody. So what are some important communication tips for providers when giving a patient a diagnosis of PCOS? Certainly, I think it's important to educate them on all of the ways that it can manifest. So for example, I sometimes will do consults for young women that have PCOS, so like teenagers or in their early 20s. And I will spend the time to talk about all of it, even the fertility piece, even if they're looking at me like maybe they're a virgin and this is completely not on their radar right now. But I tell them a few things that I think are important to know. And so those are the things that I think is very important. That first consult when you give the diagnosis, I get an hour with my patients for a new consult consult and I can easily fill that much time talking about it. And so if you have a OBGYN that you're seeing for five minutes for an annual exam, you're not going to get the same depth of information, you know, and not because they don't want to give it to you, but because that much time isn't slotted into the appointment. And so first of all, what I always tell people is that you need to get a good explanation. And so oftentimes as patients, sometimes we have to advocate for ourselves. So what I really recommend is if you feel like you got a diagnosis and you didn't have time to understand it, either seek out a specialist consultation with a reproductive or medical endocrinologist who focuses on PCOS or schedule what we call like a problem-based visit. So a repeat visit that's not your annual exam with your primary provider so that they get that chunk of time to just to talk with you about that specific issue. And that's something that you can do. And so I think that basically, it just takes a lot of time to explain all of these things. So I think the most important advice is to try to get across those main areas that can be relevant and to prepare a woman for these are the things that could come up. And here's just a beginning starter nugget of information so that if you perceive these things happening, you can come back and we can figure out what to do about it and that you know that this is all related. And how do you manage situations where maybe a patient has gone from provider to provider and just hasn't gotten the answers that they've felt like, no, there's still something going on. And now you are finally being like, okay, like this is what's going on. This is what's happening. Do you talk to that patient any differently or how do you walk through that with them where they're like, oh, I had all these experiences that were terrible and now I'm finally getting answers? 
I think sometimes it's just listening is the most important thing. And again, that's why it's nice to have that much time with my patients because I can. And so sometimes it's like people just want to tell me the whole story. Like, this is what happened. I was told this. It was really traumatizing. Then this happened. And, you know, we can sort of go through everything and let them feel like they shared every little piece of it. And that's all been considered in in the plan moving forward. And sometimes, unfortunately, a lot of it is also research they did on their own. And so they want validation, understandably, that this is an appropriate way of managing it. And so I think a lot of times it's listening, sort of validating uh, A, their experiences, B, the suffering they may have gone through and all of this and how much they may have had to be their own advocate to get the right information. Some people have had really negative healthcare experiences. And so sometimes it's really just applauding somebody for maybe they're still struggling, but they've persisted in trying to get answers. I think that that is no small feat when you're dealing with something. So I think that's what I try to do. And then, you know, I really am big on trying to direct people back to other resources that are out in the community, again, that may not be necessarily all completely 100% evidence-based, but are about the emotional support piece as well. So that again, it's not like they just come see me and then they're out there by themselves figuring it out again. I think that kind of going back to that whole social media piece, if there's anything good to be said about social media and connecting online, I, I would hope that this is the example of that where people can realize I'm so not alone in this and they can have a place to share their struggles with people that understand. So I think that is very helpful as well. So kind of going on with that online piece. So I know all diseases, women or patients will go online to seek alternative therapies or just any therapies for PCOS. And some of those might not be scientifically grounded. So can you talk about some common ones that you hear and how you talk to patients about those? Yeah, so unfortunately, in this country, there are I mean, and this is somewhat of a global problem, but particularly in the US, the supplement world is completely unregulated, right? So supplements are not regulated by the FDA. And so what that means is if you buy something at X random store, the drugstore, it could be completely full of sawdust. Or if you pick up five pills and you tested them, the dose in that pill, those five pills could be radically different. And so one of the things about supplements is that even the ones that I tend to like, if I'm not recommending a specific place for somebody to get them, typically where they're formulated completely in the US, they are verified by a third party. So I feel a bit better about the actual consistency and reliability of the supplement and that I feel like there's not going to be contaminants or other things in there. Those are all things that I think about when it comes to supplements. But sometimes what I see is that people are, and so there are a few that are, I think, have some data behind them. For example, inositol is one that I think more and more people are using. And there is some scientific evidence that it sort of over time can help the cycle become more regular. So for again, patient that maybe doesn't want to go on birth control or they are trying to get pregnant, but they really, for whatever reasons, are aversive to Western medical therapy. They want to try to regulate their cycle by themselves. Those are some of the things we'll talk about, the limitations. But there's just not a lot of scientific studies on supplements. And so we're kind of limited on on what we can say from a truly evidence-based perspective. But at the end of the day, again, if somebody's taking a boatload of supplements, but they're not watching their diet, they're not getting regular exercise, then they're not following the most evidence-based path to being healthy and to getting their cycle regulated. Because for women, we have to understand that fat tissue is hormonally active. So fat tissue makes estrogen. And so if you are carrying excess weight, particularly again in the abdominal area, that can contribute to your cycle becoming irregular. And many women that are overweight or obese get irregular cycles that aren't because of PCOS, but just because of weight. And so that's one of the things we often have to tease out the difference between. And so sometimes in our culture, 
there's sort of this tendency to say, well, I'm going to take a boatload of meds or a boatload of supplements and not do the hard part, which is eat better, eat cleaner, get some exercise. And I'm just as guilty of, you know, of that as the next person. It's really hard to be consistent. So I totally get why that is. But that's the main thing I, I worry about when I see those posts where somebody says, okay, here, try these 15 supplements. I bet a bunch of them could be helpful, but not more helpful than the basics of a healthy lifestyle. So can you unpack that a little bit more on how you talk to patients about the diet and the activity and how you help people who are struggling with that? So, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm always very clear that I'm going to talk to you about this for a little bit, but this is not, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a registered dietitian. I'm not the expert in that regard. And so, first of all, the most important thing is that I have people that I are, that are experts that I turn to. So my spiel on that, the abbreviated version is one, we'll kind of go through what the typical diet looks like. And so some of the obvious things still bear being said. So I, I definitely see plenty of people that are still consuming soda and juices on a regular basis and not getting enough water. Soda is just chock full of sugar. And if you look at the average American intake daily of sugar, it's like way multiple times over what we're supposed to be getting, right? So we start with things like that. We look at the carbohydrate intake, like I said, for many women that have PCOS, dairy can also be a trigger. So we look at that. And I will often say, look, if somebody's having a lot of bloating or GI symptoms, sometimes if they haven't done it before, I'll ask them to keep a food diary to sort of keep track of what they're eating and then how they feel. And maybe they're going to identify some of the things that make them feel really crummy. And so we're talking about the basics of essentially talking about what are the things we're eating, trying to reduce carbohydrates and and maybe monitor dairy and portion sizes, obviously, and then avoiding the extraneous sugars that creep into our diet. If you're drinking a lot of soda, or, or sometimes if like you work in a big office, and literally every week, somebody has a birthday, and you're having cake every week because of that, those are the things we have to watch out for. So we start with talking about that. Then a lot of times we'll talk about some of the stuff that we're uncovering now with intermittent fasting and keto. And so there are modified keto forms that are showing some potential value for women that have PCOS. It's not not going to be a great choice for everybody. But I think that there is some value to that, keeping in mind that if you're trying to get pregnant, once you're pregnant, you can't stay on keto. So I think it could be helpful to sort of jumpstart weight loss for somebody that has PCOS. But we have to kind of talk about the limitations of that. And so those are kind of the, the topics that we'll kind of get into. And then I will usually refer them. I'm lucky to have a colleague that I met here that I partnered with whose practice is completely around lifestyle management. And so oftentimes I'll refer my patients to her so that they can help. She has a meal replacement program as well as just the counseling. So that's one piece. And then there are a number of, like I said, health advocates out there with a variety of different credentials that have PCOS specific recipes, meal plans, etc. that I like, that I've read that I like. So I'll usually email those resources to my patients as well and say, here are some examples. Because the hard part is for many of my patients, I could give them a multiple choice quiz. They know all of this stuff, but for the hard part is executing that, right? Is knowing what to buy when you go to the grocery store and how to turn that into food you'll actually eat. And so oftentimes I'll say, look, the advantage of using these resources is not necessarily to learn something you don't already know, but just to help you do it. And so if it gives you a shopping list and you just have to go to the grocery store, pick that stuff up and then follow the recipe that's a lot easier than trying to start from scratch and find everything yourself. So that's the piece on, on diet. And then exercise, the best evidence is really more for lower interval, like sort, sort of less time, but higher intensity. And so I often try to recommend people to work up to high intensity interval training style workouts and try to say, look, 20 to 30 minutes, two or three times a week. 
that's not a lot. That's like an hour and a half in a week. But we're working up to kind of more intense workouts that are still not that hard, whether it's just squats and jumping jacks and stuff that you're streaming for free off of YouTube at home, or whether you go to a class, there's so many different ways to do it. And so I kind of have to feel out each person and see what they're willing to do. But again, there's just so many free workouts that you can trial or stream so many apps that are out there that really do that work for you that will create a 20 30 minute workout that kind of hits all of the main muscle groups and kind of gets your heart rate up that I think it's a lot easier than it was maybe you know 20 years ago so that's kind of what we talk about and it depends what somebody does some people really like going to fitness studios and classes and some people are really self-conscious and they want to stream at home some people have a partner or a family member or a friend that will do it with them and can be their accountability partner so again, it just really depends on the person and how we figure it out. But I never tell anybody, yes, you're going to do an hour a day every day because that's completely unrealistic. And I'm setting somebody up to fail if I try to tell them something crazy like that. How do you balance this conversation with making sure that women don't feel like fat shamed or embarrassed about themselves? You know, in the end, it's not about the number on the scale, right? So it's really about just being healthy. And so I say, I tell them we're going to have, I have this conversation with everybody in this situation. And it's basically because of this diagnosis, it's putting you at risk for something. And even if you are totally healthy now, you want to stay that way. And so again, most of my patients are going to be in their teens to maybe forties, but there's another whole, however many decades of life after that, that we're trying to prepare for. Right. And so to me, it's not like, okay, we're losing weight just to get the number down. And in fact, as you guys know, for many people that are at a medium weight, if they start working out, they may actually gain weight, quote unquote, in terms of building some muscle before maybe the the number goes down. And that's totally fine. But it's looking at where their sugar levels are looking at are they going to be healthy during pregnancy? Are they going to be strong to carry a pregnancy and have a healthy delivery? And especially like, for my fertility patients, understanding that in this country, half of women don't lose their baby weight after pregnancy, and they're at risk for all of these things to go on and progress gestational diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And then the very cool thing that I like to talk to my fertility patients about that I think is very motivating is this whole concept of what we call epigenetics, which is sort of teaching the fetus during that intrauterine time what's normal. And so if somebody has had horrible habits up until they get pregnant, but they try to make changes then and they're trying to control their sugars better and and they're getting some exercise and they're doing a good job, the fetus is learning that during that time. It doesn't know what its mom did 10 years ago. It knows what's happening then. And so believe it or not, if you look at two women that are pregnant, and one of them is having soda every day and gaining too much weight and all of this stuff, and her child is born with abnormal birth weight as a result of that, maybe there was gestational diabetes in the picture or whatever, compared to another woman who could still be maybe a little bit overweight, but has made much more of an effort that way and did better during pregnancy, that second kiddo has a lifelong lower chance of having weight issues, of having diabetes, of having heart disease in that first kiddo. And so as women, that's a very motivating thing to hear that, look, I've struggled with this for a long time, but if I can do well now leading up into my pregnancy, maybe I can spare my child from dealing with that. And maybe I can give them the tools to be as healthy as possible for their entire life. And so that's something I like to talk to as well with my fertility patients, because I think that feels very motivating. Like, okay, maybe this hasn't gone well in the past, but I have an extra reason to try now. So we talk about that stuff too. And I mean, it doesn't always work. It's like anything else we change in our lifestyle. A lot of times we fail a bunch of times before we succeed. So that's okay. And in the most extreme cases, there are sometimes arguments to be made even for considering bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery as a a really evidence-based approach as well. So, I mean, there's just so many different ways to look at it. 
feeling a little guilty now about the way I ate when I was pregnant. <laughs> I'm no, like, I mean, oh, <laughs> nobody's perfect. Um, we all cheat. We all, you know, it's not, it's not about that. And so, you know, really, I try hard not to shame people on that because at the end of the day, you have to get through it. Especially the first trimester is horrible. People, mm-hmm. you have to just eat what you can get by. It's like carb central. Um, so, you know, that's yes. okay. But at least it's being thoughtful and doing the best you can that, that that's all that's all you can do next time if there is a next time i get pregnant i'm gonna remember this podcast and be like <laughs> i've known that before listen to it yeah, again right? <laughs> no i'm sure you were great and i'm oh. sure your kiddo is perfect mm, nope <laughs> <laughs> not at all <laughs> <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> One thing I want to circle back to is you had talked about using like social media for improving health literacy and health literacy is something that's definitely come up in a lot of our other podcasts and in that women have a pretty low health literacy when it comes to reproductive stuff. And so one question that we have is that can you talk about then how you've seen health literacy as it relates to PCOS? Yeah, well, I think, like I said before, it doesn't help that the name is a little bit of a misnomer as well, because it has the word cyst in there. People get very confused about what that means. And then the unfortunate reality is that even some of my research has looked into fertility counseling as provided by even OBGYNs, and there's gaps in the fertility knowledge even of OBGYNs. So it's not, you can't really blame somebody for having low health literacy on this particular topic. So it really spans the educational spectrum. It spans the vocational spectrum. And my research has kind of shown that. And there have been studies all across the world that have shown that, that it's, it's really um, pervasive and, and obviously among men and women, but it really doesn't correlate necessarily with your educational level. And so part of the problem is that we don't have universal factual-based sex, sexual education in this country. So that's part of it. When I do consults, my first piece is just explaining the menstrual cycle. And I always say, okay, we're going back to high school biology. But in my head, I know that a lot of people are getting this for the very first time. And so that's sort of the reality is many people are confused. How many eggs are released every month? What? How do we time intercourse? Sort of the basics. So what I hope is that social media is allowing people to get these little digestible pieces of some of the facts of reproduction. And also, oh, most importantly, I haven't even said this, is sort of the age-based component of that, right? Because otherwise we need something to combat the, okay, ex-celebrity just quote-unquote got pregnant at age 47. And every time that happens, I get a rash of women coming in and being like, oh, I'm also 47. It happened for her. Can it happen for me? And I have to be the one to say there was very likely there are previously frozen eggs or donor eggs or various things that could have been involved in that. We don't, will not know, but you need to be realistic about what the numbers are. And so it's kind of combating some of the other stuff that we get in our tabloid magazines that we all like to read. Well, thank you. So I think you hit on a little bit earlier about empowering women on how women can sort of advocate for themselves with providers. So what else can we as providers do to help or empower women to know what to look for when they're maybe thinking their menstrual cycles are regular that they have PCOS? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's making sure that we've offered them our time. So, I mean, one of those things that when you're a medical student, you always are really good about, or you're supposed to be good about asking a lot of open-ended questions, right? So making sure that you've given the patient a ton of time to talk and ask things in the most 
the way that best elicits a full answer. And then as we get further on in training and we have less and less time, then often those questions become more and more closed-ended. And so at the end, at the very least, is to say, okay, do you feel like you understand? Does this make sense? Do you have questions? You can always come back to me with questions. I give my patients my email address. So I often say, look, I just gave you a ton of information. You may process some of this later. And if there are more questions that come up later, just shoot me a message. And so that, again, is fortunate for how I practice, but it's not going to make sense for everybody that's in a different practice setup. So everybody has to figure out what works for them. But keeping in mind that it's going to be that you, if you give somebody a ton of information, it's going to take them some time to process it and they need a way to be able to circle back and make sure that they understood everything. So I think it's trying to take the time, trying to ask open-ended questions, trying to offer resources that can fill in the gaps where maybe, you know, you're not going to be following up with them super regularly. And then, like I said, if, if it seems appropriate offering consultation with somebody else, I am very humble about what I can and can't do. I mean, as much as I would love to be able to follow somebody and, and help them with their weight loss goals or lifestyle goals, that's not how our practice is set up. And so that's where I have to say, look, if you see my colleague or if you follow any other plans, you're going to get better follow up on that than what I can offer. And so we all have to kind of accept our limitations of what we're doing as providers and what our practice resources are and what we're set up to offer. So I, I think it's just being realistic about what you have and then trying to make the connections out in the community. I was really, it took me a long time to find somebody that I trusted sending my patients to that wasn't going to give them weird weight loss supplements or things that weren't evidence-based or things that weren't going to be safe for my fertility patients. And it took me a while to find somebody actually that I trusted. And so as a provider, I think those are the things you can do are to try to find the resources that are out there that you can vet and feel good about that fill in the gaps of what you can't do personally. So from like a provider standpoint and being in that, like, this is your specialty, is there something that you wish that all providers knew that you were like, oh, if I could just tell them this related to PCOS, do you have that one nugget or little bit that you're like, oh, I want you all to know this? What would that be? I mean, I think it's really just the biggest piece is the anxiety piece that goes along with it. And there have just in the past year or two, there have been a bunch of really good meta-analyses that came out looking specifically at that and found that rates of depression and anxiety can be three to five fold higher in women that have PCOS. And that's pretty substantial. And so I think if we just all recognize that this is a diagnosis that when they go home and Google it will generate a lot of questions, a lot of confusion, and potentially a lot of angst. And oftentimes I think the theme that I hear across my patients is this feeling a sense that their body's working against them. And that's a horrible way to feel. And so if everyone could just pause to recognize how difficult this is to go through, and whether it's my teen patient, that's like, all my skinny friends at school don't have to deal with this, or they don't have acne, or they don't have hair, or they can eat whatever they want, or whether it's my 36 year old patient that is having difficulty getting pregnant, and she's the last one out of all of her friends or whatever, you know, that whole spectrum, there's a lot of anxiety. And so I think on the one hand, I hope that people are aware of that. But on the other hand, does that always translate to how they're taking care of their patients and making sure that they're giving them the time and the space and all that stuff we just talked about. So I guess if I had to say one thing, it would be obviously that I said, there's still a lot of misconceptions out in the community among community physicians and then also among women. So obviously, if I could snap my fingers and make sure that everybody understood the current criteria and all of that stuff, that would be awesome. But I think at the end, it's understanding the anxiety and hoping that people are willing to refer their patients elsewhere if they can't provide those resources. Great. Thank you. So you mentioned a lot earlier in the podcast, some resources that you send patients to. So if you could 
talk about those. And then also if there's any other resources that are more geared to providers to learn more about PCOS? Yeah, sure. So I think it depends what people are looking for. So in terms of reproductive uh, information in general, oftentimes I'll steer people towards the patient-facing website of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. So that's www.reproductivefacts.org. So those are all, particularly for my fertility patients, things that are written for patients, but from a physician's perspective. So they are all vetted, they are all evidence-based, and there's a lot of just factual stuff that you can get there. For more of the community piece, I've collaborated a lot with Amy Medling, who's a PCOS advocate up in New Hampshire. She goes by PCOS Diva, and she has a great, great website. I've done a lot of guest blogs and podcasts with her. And And she's been really helpful in sort of connecting me to that community. PCOS Challenge is another great support organization. They do a lot of important advocacy work and have some resources as well. And then from the diet perspective, often um, send people to Angela Grassi, who's a registered dietitian up in Chicago who runs the or has written the PCOS Nutrition Cookbook and also has a free listserv that people can get on aside from ordering the books. And so those are all things that I have vetted myself and, and that light that I like. Amy has a book that she wrote last year that I reviewed for her and, and a big chunk of that is about diet. And so for people that want to really dive deep and sort of get into, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to use these meal plans and stuff. I think those really break it down and are very specific to PCOS. So those are some of the starting points that I usually refer to. And then, like I said, I have colleagues locally that can help people as well, either with the the diet counseling and meal plans or hormone support groups. There are a bunch of people that I've tried to connect with in Houston that are working in this area. So for my local patients, I'll, I'll refer them to those as well. And then what about for providers? Do you also, would you say, check out those resources or are there some other resources that providers could look into to to learn more about PCOS? I mean, I think those are good starting points. I think that for people trained in Western medicine, like myself, there is a very big spectrum of comfort with diving into other things. So A, nutrition education among medical schools is not great. So I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that most Western trained doctors are not experts in nutrition. And many physicians were trained on the food pyramid method and the breakfast is the most important meal of the day concept. But most Americans or many Americans are eating sugar laden cereals or pastries or fruit flavored yogurt, you know, all these things have tons of sugar. And so if that's your breakfast, you're not, it's not an important meal of your day, you're not starting your day off great. And so I think uh, we have to recognize that we have to learn uh, and keep learning about the things that are changing and, and things like intermittent fasting and keto are new. And it's not easy to learn about them, but you have to put the effort in. So, and then when it comes to supplements and even things like acupuncture, not every physician is going to be comfortable recommending those things because of the medium level or absence of firm data on that. And so I just encourage people to be a little bit more open-minded and sort of see where they can sort of have that honest conversation with their patients to say, here are some options that might be good for you. They have some evidence behind them. It's not a perfect match for everybody, but for the patients that are struggling with the typical way that we've always done things, there are a lot of other options and it does take a little bit of self-initiative to to learn about these things and to find people out in the community that are doing them. So it's just a matter of investing the time. So in addition to providers listening to our podcast, we also have a growing number of listeners who do not necessarily identify as a healthcare provider. And so for those women or the folks who are listening, if they suspect that they have PCOS, but feel their symptoms have been dismissed, how do you recommend they communicate to their provider or what can they do? 
You know, that's a really important question is how do we advocate for ourselves? Because unfortunately, I mean, sometimes people, people will come in and they'll say, well, you know, I read on the internet this. And sometimes that ends up being big turn off to the provider where they're like, oh gosh, now I have to go through and potentially de- debunk this entire myth. But a lot of times there is legitimacy to what's being said and have to listen. So I feel like for any woman, if they feel that their concerns are not being heard, that they're being told just do this without a full explanation, then it's time to get a second opinion. And, you know, I think it's fair to to say to your, pri- to your provider, I still have questions or I don't feel like I understand this or I would appreciate a more detailed explanation of why you think this is the right treatment for me or what you think the diagnosis is. Are you confident that this is the diagnosis? You know, these kinds of questions can be asked very respectfully, but I think maybe help give the provider some pause to sort of make sure that they have explained everything in an appropriate manner. And I think if you don't get those answers or you don't feel comfortable with those answers, that's when you get the second opinion. And particularly for things that are specialized like this, that is maybe where you look for a specialist in that area, whether it's an endocrinologist from a reproductive background or a medical background, but so whatever the case may be, look for that. So I would say if you've had blood work done or whatever, get copies of your records and feel free to get a second opinion if you've tried and you're not getting the right answer or the appropriate amount of time or whatever, because at the end of the day, there's nothing more important than understanding what's going on with your body. And if you don't feel like you're getting the right answers, then you have to unfortunately try again um, and you know ask for recommendations. You have friends in the area. If you are connected to a community on social media, you know, ask, is there somebody that is in this area that you guys have had good experience with? So that's how a lot of people will find me or, or my colleagues was through word of mouth. So don't be afraid to share your story a little bit and, and try to get uh, recommendations so that you're not just blindly jumping from provider to provider, because it's really hard to sort people out just based on what you can find on Google. So I think having a, a word of mouth referral is very helpful. Oh, the other thing I did want to say too for our listeners, there were a lot of resources mentioned. And so we do put all of the resources that we talk about during our podcast in our show notes. So if ever you're wondering like, oh, I missed that or where can I get a link for that, including studies that we discuss, all those links are in our PDF of our show notes. So just for our listeners, so they know that. And you can get those on our Patreon page. Yes, you can get those on our Patreon page, which you can access at either www.patreon.com slash WCH, or you can go to our website and you'll see a Patreon header on there. And again, our website is www.womancenteredhealth.com. So Rashmi, we would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? Yeah, thank you guys. First of all, it's just been a pleasure. And I I think when we talk about PCOS, I guess there is one last thing I want to say, which is that a lot of times it feels like a downer. You know, I spent a lot of time saying there's a lot of anxiety that goes along with all of these symptoms and there's so many ways it can show up and there's still stuff we don't understand. But I think that to me, one of the, the papers that I wrote was relating to the what happens with PCOS as we get closer to menopause. And the kind of tagline or the summary of that paper was that it really seems like a lot of the health risks are really predominant during the reproductive years. And so if somebody is able to make all these changes we were talking about, or some of the changes we were talking about and, and prevent themselves from getting diabetes and heart disease and all this stuff, by the time you get to menopause, average age 51 in this country, all women become at risk for heart disease and other things. And so the the relative risk of having PCOS at that point really diminishes. And so based on the current data, feels like a lifelong 
diagnosis. And it's always something that's important to mention, but it really seems like if during the bulk of our reproductive years, we can try to do our best to make the best choices we can prevent ourselves from getting some of these conditions. By the time we get to menopause, it could be that this is no longer an issue for us. And so I think that to me, that feels like something to strive for and to be able to say, look, I get to this point in my life and I did it. And, you know, not to say that you can then just do whatever you want, but, you know, then it's not really an active diagnosis per se based on the best available data. There's not higher incidence of cardiovascular mortality or serious morbidity based on this diagnosis. So it's all about what we can do during our earlier years to stay healthy through the latter half or latter third of our lives. And so I I hope that's a little bit uplifting because it's not just like a lifelong thing you have to slog through. It is something where if you make that effort, it can come back to reward you with a really healthy, older, however many decades of life that we have. So I think that to me is an important goal and, and something worth mentioning. Yeah, definitely worth mentioning. Because like you Mm -hmm. said, if there's a lot of anxiety that comes with this, and you feel like that's this lifelong sentence, I feel if I were in that position, it would be nice to also kind of have that sandwiched communicated to me with all, you know, here's all this stuff that's happening and, you know, all the ways to fix it. But there's this light at the end of the tunnel for you. I feel like that's a great way to also keep in mind when you are doing the diagnosis and and crafting all of this and talking, communicating to the patient about this. So that's a great final thought you had there. And (laughs) I I can see very critical to this whole package. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.